Hello everybody and welcome back to Catacomb Synod Basics where we go over the distinctives for the Catacomb Synod as brought to you by the Very Lutheran Project. Today we are continuing in our reading of the Augsburg Confession and contextualizing it, meaning we're going to ask the question, how does this apply to us today? So often Lutherans out there, especially of the confessional stripe, will say, well, we're not Rome. It's good to know this stuff and to know where we disagree with the Roman Catholic Church, why we believe we are uh, Catholics of the Augsburg variety, always Catholic, never Roman. But we never ask ourselves, are we doing the stuff that Rome was doing? For the past hundred years or so, we have lacked that introspection which asks whether we are committing the very same sins that sparked the Reformation in the first place. As far as the Catacomb Synod is concerned, we believe, teach, and confess that yes, the Lutheran churches have lost their way. And we say this with all humility in mind, we do not want to be on a high horse pointing our finger at everybody and saying, I am holier and more righteous than you. But we still must call a thing what it is. Let us start this by reading Article 21 on the Cult of Saints. It is also taught among us that saints should be kept in remembrance so that our faith may be strengthened when we see what grace they received and how they were sustained by faith. Moreover, their good works are to be an example for us, each of us in his own calling, so his imperial majesty may in salutary and godly fashion imitate the example of David in making war on the Turk. For both are incumbents of a royal office which demands the defense and protection of their subjects. However, it cannot be proved from the scriptures that we are to invoke saints or seek help from them. For there is one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, who is the only Savior, the only High Priest, Advocate, and Intercessor before God, Romans 8 verse 34. He alone has promised to hear our prayers. Moreover, according to the scriptures, the highest form of divine service is sincerely to seek and call upon this same Jesus Christ in every time of need. Quote, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2 verse 1. So the Roman Catholic Church for about a thousand years now has had all of these prostrations before a hierarchy of saints. People that they believe you can speak to from beyond the veil of death receiving favor, merit, and fulfilled requests as you ask them to pray for you or they lend their own personal graces. To invoke a saint or seek help from them is basically to submit to this Roman Catholic way of thinking. Now in doctrine and in prayer, Protestants don't do this. We do not pray to Mary, we do not pray to the saints, as the Reformers pointed out here, you cannot prove from Scripture that we are supposed to do this, so Lutherans do not do it. We pray to the one to whom our Lord Christ points us, that is, God. However, I want to ask the question, 
in practice, do we do something similar to Rome? I would say, yes, unfortunately, we have fallen into that habit. Namely, in using the saints, our saints of old, our church fathers, our great reformers in history, have been used for theological arguments and as examples of what people should do, almost like tools. Maybe we are not asking St. Martin Luther for favors, but we are certainly using him as a baseball bat wherein we smash people's scriptural arguments. The radical Lutherans and the followers of Ellert and Gerhard Ferda are using Luther and claiming, oh, he always just agreed with us, and don't you dare pit Luther against Luther on these matters. When it's not what Luther said that matters, it's what the Bible says. Now, I will say that the teachers of our churches, our theologians of old, like Luther and Melanchthon and Chemnitz and all these other wonderful men, Pieper, Mueller, others, these great theologians, are good teachers of the word. But we don't look at them and say they are the infallible magisterium of the church. We look at the Bible as the only infallible source of doctrine and morals. Because only the Bible is infallible. But we've taken this habit on both sides of uh, Lutheranism, by the way, both liberal and conservative, both have taken these teachers and are using them as clubs against each other in the hopes that, yes, even though I'm not really asking or invoking St. Pieper to help me in my argument, I am still going to pretend that his graces and merits lend me such credence to my argument that I win and my opponent loses. This is where I have heard people saying, Ah, the church of C.F.W. Walther is fine by me. I want that Lutheranism. Well, why don't you just want biblical Christianity? Why do you need C.F.W. Walther as some sort of mascot here? I say this to my own shame, by the way, because I am a massive fan of Spanner, the father of pietism. I love his writings, I love what the man had to say, and even when I disagree with him on something, I still try to defer to what he said oftentimes. But Spanner is not Christ. Spanner is not the Holy Spirit inspiring the Word of God. When we look at these men's writings, we can say, well, this individual says this, so I agree with him. We can say that, yes, we do not say, Luther said it, therefore it's right, and I'm right, period. <laughs> That's silly. We would be doing the same thing as the Roman Catholic Church with their magisterium. Ah, but we don't just stop there in our invocation of saints, do we? Oh no, we also use examples of modern, secular saints to tell us what we ought to do. For any laity listening to this, how many times have you heard your pastor use Bonhoeffer as some sort of example of Christian faith and living and looking at how he was so correct in everything he did, when in reality Bonhoeffer was a murderer, at least a would-be murderer, I don't think he's a great example, but you see he's this neoliberal hero, so people bring him up and say, you need to be like that man, because you want to be a hero, right? 
We do the same thing with Martin Luther King Jr. We do the same thing with all sorts of saints out there. Corey Ten Boom, secular heroes of the neoliberal world order, where we believe that if we just bring them up, we get people to act like them. If we just borrow some of their merits and their graces, and we pour it forth from the pulpit, pour it forth to our laity, suddenly they will see as secular heroes those whom we see as secular heroes. How is that not invocation? Oh sure, you're not asking them for any favors, but you're trying to modify human behaviors and beliefs, and you're trying to win arguments using them as an example. Let history be history and cling to the word of God rather than playing role model games with people. That's not Protestant thinking. That is not arguing from what the scriptures say. That is arguing with your interpretation of history that is still operating under a fundamentally Roman Catholic way of looking at things. And if you are going to claim that you are a confessional Lutheran, you should not be doing this in practice or in doctrine. But I digress. Moving along the reformers right in transition to the next section, this is just about a summary of the doctrines that are preached and taught in our churches for proper Christian instruction, the consolation of consciences, and the amendment of believers. Certainly we should not wish to put our own souls and consciences in grave peril before God by misusing his name or word nor should we wish to bequeath to our children and posterity any other teaching than that which agrees with the pure word of God and Christian truth. Since this teaching is grounded clearly on the Holy Scriptures and is not contrary or opposed to that of the universal Christian Church, or even of the Roman Church, insofar as the latter's teaching is reflected in the writing of the Fathers, we think that our opponents cannot disagree with us in the articles set forth above. Therefore, those who presume to reject, avoid, and separate from our churches as if our teaching were heretical act in an unkind and hasty fashion contrary to all Christian unity and love, and do so without any solid basis of divine command or scripture. The dispute and dissension are concerned chiefly with various traditions and abuses. Since then, there is nothing unfounded or defective in the principal articles, and since this our confession is seen to be godly and Christian, the bishops should, in all fairness, act more leniently, even if there were some defect among us in regard to traditions, although we hope to offer firm grounds and reasons why we have changed certain traditions and abuses. And that is why I'm speaking about these matters today. The reformers wanted to do just that. Reform the church. Correct abuses. Make the church glorify God with correct doctrine and correct practice. If we do not ask ourselves whether we are doing the same exact thing as the Roman Catholic Church in the turn of the 16th century, how can we say that we are any better than them? If we say, oh, I have correct doctrine, and I do not do the very, very specific things that Rome was doing, uh, for instance, one kind in the sacrament, or not praying to St. Jude, then I'm perfectly fine, and anything else I do is okay. Well, go rejoin Rome then. Because <laughs> clearly, abuses are fine if you just 
cross all your T's and dot all of your I's and say you're not specifically doing this little thing here. That's Rome's logic. They will argue against Lutheran talking points by saying, well, it's not exactly characterized as the Lutherans are putting it, and here's where we're technically in the right in accordance with X, Y, or Z canon law. So if that's fine, if you're not technically sinning according to whatever canon rule, whatever saint said X, Y, or Z, or whatever papal pronouncement, if that's how you're going to argue and if that's how you're going to live, go be a Roman Catholic. But as for me, and as for the Catacomb Synod, we are going to be Lutherans that mean it, and we are going to be on guard against these violations and abuses performed in practice just as much as in doctrine. So we move into the articles about matters in dispute and the abuses which have been corrected. And they introduce this by saying, From the above it is manifest that nothing is taught in our churches concerning articles of faith that is contrary to the Holy Scriptures or what is common to the Christian church. However, inasmuch as some abuses have been corrected, some of the abuses having crept in over the years and others of them having been introduced with violence, we are obliged by our circumstances to give an account of them and to indicate our reasons for permitting changes in these cases, in order that your imperial majesty may perceive that we have not acted in an unchristian and frivolous manner, but have been compelled by God's command, which is rightly to be regarded as above all custom, to allow such changes. We agree with this. This is why I am doing the Catacomb Basics series in order to demonstrate and talk about and explain why the Catacomb Synod exists. There are abuses which have led us to say there may come a time in which Christendom, Protestant Christendom, must go back to the catacombs, must go back to house churches, and I should give an account of what we're doing lest I be considered some raving schismatic starting his own church willy-nilly. So we have to ask the question, are these abuses persisting? And unfortunately, they are. They have cropped up. Another example, Article 22, both kinds in the sacrament. Among us, both kinds are given to laymen in the sacrament. The reason is that there is a clear command and order of Christ. Drink of it, all of you, Matthew 26, verse 27. Concerning the chalice, Christ here commands with clear words that all should drink of it. In order that no one might question these words and interpret them as if they apply only to priests, Paul shows in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 20 that the whole assembly of the congregation in Corinth received both kinds. This usage continued in the church for a long time, as can be demonstrated from history and from writings of the fathers. In several places, Cyprian mentions that the cup was given to laymen in his time. St. Jerome also states that the priests who administered the sacrament distributed the blood of Christ to the people. Pope Galatius himself ordered that the sacrament was not to be divided. Not a single canon can be found which requires the reception of only one kind. Nobody knows when or through whom this custom of receiving only one kind was introduced, although Cardinal Cassanus mentions when the use was approved. It is evident that such a custom, introduced contrary to God's command and also contrary to the ancient canons, is unjust. 
Accordingly, it is not proper to burden the consciences of those who desire to observe the sacrament according to Christ's institution, or to compel them to act contrary to the arrangement of our Lord Christ. Because the division of the sacrament is contrary to the institution of Christ, the customary carrying about of the sacrament in processions is also omitted by us. I have a question for you. Which is worse? To deny the cup to the laity, or to deny communion to the laity entirely? The Roman Catholic argument for receiving communion in one kind only was, well, the whole Jesus is there anyway, so we can go ahead and restrict the cup from the laity. That is their argument. It's not a good one. It's an ungodly one that goes against the explicit command of our Lord Christ. However, which is worse, that or saying, well, they're shutting down public life because people might get sick, so nobody's going to get communion in the first place. I would wager that both are equally sinful. Yet the entirety of so many Lutheran churches during the COVID lockdowns said, we are not going to adjust anything. We are not going to relax any requirement regarding the consecration of the elements. Our doctrine is pure, and we will not permit people to receive communion at all unless we can have a full church service here in our sanctuary. Rome said, we don't want the laity abusing communion. So we're only going to do this part of Jesus's command. Jesus says, take and eat, take and drink. Well, we can ignore that uh, last part. Lutheran churches all over the world said, yeah, Jesus says, take and eat, take and drink. But we're going to make sure you get neither of those because somebody might get sick and the government might be mad at us. There were ways to do this without violating the law of the land while people were on lockdown. There were ways of relaxing the standards and permitting the heads of household who could be instructed in consecrating the elements to have communion at home. This is not an endorsement of online communion. I deny online communion. But there were ways of getting around it. When pastors could visit the laity, they should have been working overtime to give communion to every single member of their churches. I don't care if it's 100 hours a week of work, driving around, visiting, layperson after layperson. It was his duty, if they were not going to empower heads of household to consecrate the elements, it was his duty to do it, but they did not. So many churches shut down. So many pastors refused to do their duty, the sacrament part of word and sacrament. How is that not an abuse? Oh, because the state said don't visit people. Oh, because the state said you might get sick. I see now when the apostles say we must obey God rather than men, the Lutheran churches responded, actually, St. Peter, we are going to obey men rather than God here. In order to correct that abuse and to prevent it from happening, we here at the Catacomb Synod have provided a communion addendum for the heads of household to provide the sacrament to their families. Is that ideal? Absolutely not. A congregation should be selecting a qualified minister of word and sacrament in order to rightly provide the Eucharist. 
However, we do train deacons and lay leaders to do just such a thing. And while there are ministers who are to be commended for doing their best to bring the sacrament to the laity during the shutdowns, and there are heads of household who did their best during these times, who are to be commended for their heroism, the vast majority of Lutheranism is called to repentance here by the word of God. But there's a worse one, a societal one, which we've been trying to address with the Sex and Marriage series on the Very Lutheran SoundCloud, Article 23, The Marriage of Priests, which we will end on today. Among all people, both of high and of low degree, there has been loud complaint throughout the world concerning the flagrant immorality and the dissolute life of priests who were not able to remain continent and who went so far as to engage in abominable vices. In order to avoid such unbecoming offense, adultery, and other lechery, some of our priests have entered the married state. They have given as their reason that they have been impelled and moved to take this step by the great distress of their consciences, especially since the scriptures clearly assert that the estate of marriage was instituted by the Lord God to avoid immorality. For Paul says, because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, and again, it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9. Moreover, when Christ said in Matthew 19 verse 11, not all men can receive this precept, he indicated that few people have the gift of living in celibacy, and he certainly knew men's nature. God created man as male and female, according to Genesis 1 verse 27. Experience has made it all too manifest whether or not it lies in human power and ability to improve or change the creation of God, the supreme majesty, by means of human resolution or vows, without a special gift or grace of God. What good has resulted? What honest and chaste manner of life, what Christian upright and honorable sort of conduct has resulted in many cases? It is well known what terrible torment and frightful disturbances of conscience many have experienced on their deathbeds on this account, and many have themselves acknowledged this. Since God's word and command cannot be altered by any human vows or laws, our priests and other clergy have taken wives to themselves for these and other reasons and causes. It can be demonstrated from history and from the writings of the fathers that it was customary for priests and deacons to marry in the Christian church of former times. Paul therefore said in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, A bishop must be above reproach, married only once. It was only 400 years ago that the priests in Germany were compelled by force to take the vows of celibacy. At that time there was such serious and strong resistance that an archbishop of Mayence, who had published the new papal decree, was almost killed during an uprising of the entire body of priests. The decree concerning celibacy was at once enforced so hastily and indecently that the Pope at the time not only forbade future marriages of priests, but also broke up the marriages which were of long standing. This was of course not only contrary to all divine, natural, and civil law, but was also utterly opposed and contrary to the canons which the popes had themselves made and to the decisions of the most renowned councils. Many devout and intelligent people in high station have expressed similar opinions in the misgiving that such enforced celibacy and such prohibition of marriage, which God himself instituted and left free to man, never produced any good, but rather gave occasion for many great and evil vices and much scandal. 
As his biography shows, even one of the popes, Pius II, often said and allowed himself to be quoted as saying that while there may well have been some reasons for prohibiting the marriage of clergymen, there were now more important, better, and weightier reasons for permitting them to be married. There is no doubt that Pope Pius, as a prudent and intelligent man, made this statement because of grave misgivings. In loyalty to your imperial majesty, we therefore feel confident that as a most renowned Christian emperor, your majesty will graciously take into account the fact that in these last times of which the scriptures prophesy, the world is growing worse and men are becoming weaker and more infirm. Therefore, it is most necessary, profitable, and Christian to recognize this fact in order that the prohibition of marriage may not cause worse and more disgraceful lewdness and vice to prevail in German lands. No one is able to alter or arrange such matters in a better or wiser way than God himself, who instituted marriage to aid human infirmity and prevent unchastity. The old canons also state that it is sometimes necessary to relax severity and rigor for the sake of human weaknesses and to prevent and avoid greater offense. In this case, relaxation would certainly be both Christian and very necessary. How would the marriage of priests and the clergy, and especially of the pastors and others who are to minister to the church, be of disadvantage to the Christian church as a whole? If this hard prohibition of marriage is to continue longer, there may be a shortage of priests and pastors in the future. Uh, note here that this is true across the board in all Christian denominations. We are going through a serious clergy shortage, especially in Rome, and double plus especially in the Missouri Synod and other confessional Lutheran branches. We continue. As we have observed, the assertion that priests and clergymen may marry is based on God's word and command. Besides, history demonstrates that both priests were married and that the vow of celibacy has been the cause of so much frightful and unchristian offense, so much adultery, and such terrible, shocking immorality and abominable vice that even some honest men among the cathedral clergy and some of the courtiers in Rome have often acknowledged this and have complained that such vices among the clergy would, on account of their abomination and prevalence, arouse the wrath of God. It is therefore deplorable that Christian marriage has not only been forbidden, but has in many places been swiftly punished, as if it were a great crime, in spite of the fact that in the Holy Scriptures God commanded that marriage be held in honor. Marriage has also been highly praised in the imperial laws, and in all states in which there have been laws and justice. Only in our time does one begin to persecute innocent people simply because they are married, and especially priests who, above all others, should be spared, although this is done contrary not only to divine law, but also to canon law. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 3, the Apostle Paul calls the teaching that forbids marriage a doctrine of the devil. Christ himself asserts that the devil is a murderer from the beginning, John 8:44. These two statements fit together well, for it must be a doctrine of the devil to forbid marriage and then to be so bold as to maintain such a teaching with the shedding of blood. However, just as no human law can alter or abolish a command of God, neither can any vow alter a command of God. St. Cyprian therefore offered the counsel that women who were unable to keep their vows of chastity should marry. He wrote in his eleventh letter, if they are unwilling or unable to keep their chastity, it is better for them to marry than to fall into the fire through their lusts. 
and they should see to it that they do not give their brothers and sisters occasion for offense. In addition, all the canons show great leniency and fairness toward those who have made vows in their youth, and most of the priests and monks entered into their estates ignorantly when they were young. What the Roman Catholic Church did was bad. I don't think any Protestant disagrees with this. Priests and pastors should be able to be married, but in a very real sense. Protestant churches everywhere have expanded the ban on marriage to laity in addition to the pastors. Oh, you can get married, they will say. You may be married, but A, we will not help you be married. We will not help young single men and women get together. To the contrary, we will go along with a culture that says, go off to college and uh, we'll wink at you living a worldly, sinful, lust-filled life over while you're away from home. We'll do that and then maybe when you come back, you'll be married in time to join our church. We have told them that when they do get married, here are these rules against the word of God to make sure that your marriage looks nice to the world. We have taught mutual submission. We have taught men are not rulers and heads of their own household. We have taught people that they cannot enjoy the benefits of marriage when they are married, unless maybe circumstances are right for it. We have unfortunately adopted St. Augustine's quip that a married man's bedroom should not be his own personal bordello, and thus we have betrayed one of the chief functions of marriage, which is to prevent and mitigate sins. We have told young single laity that there is a quote-unquote vocation of singleness, and instead of helping them get married, we leave them to the wolves of the world which will tempt them. And given that we have denigrated marriage so much, even to the point where uh, one figure I heard was 80% of pastors in one district were regularly going to confession for their pornography addictions, Clearly, the church has not been doing the right thing in being adaptable to the circumstances we find ourselves in and becoming a pro-marriage, pro-sex institution. To the contrary, we have listened to the feminists, we have listened to the egalitarians, and we have listened to even the Roman Catholics in turning marriage into a sterile, ugly affair that is withheld from single people for the sake of making sure that they don't go about things in the wrong way or we are worried about divorce statistics. We have not supported our marriages. We have not supported the laity in any of this. How are we not worse now than Rome was 500 years ago? We have taken all of these problems and sure, our doctrine says you can get married. Our doctrine says this is what marriage is for, but in practice, we have rebelled so horribly against what God has instituted that we find our churches driving 90 miles an hour towards that demographic cliff and aging out into obscurity. Accordingly, the Catacomb Synod has adopted a policy of instructing all deacons in training to assist their single people in finding a wife or finding a husband. While the church cannot be held responsible for the outcome of each individual Christian's life, 
Lust is a real burden which one man or one woman cannot hold on their own if they have not been given the spiritual gift of celibacy. Therefore, the church should be encouraging marriage. The church should be encouraging people to settle in their place, even as young adults, to grow the church, to find a wife or a husband, and to have a normal Christian life with all of the freedom and benefits that marriage offers. Accordingly, we also emphasize the freedom that a man and his wife have in the bedroom. The marriage bed is to be held in honor among all, Hebrews 13 verse 4, and it is not our job to tell a husband and a wife what they can or cannot do in their marriage bed, with the exception, of course, of saying no adultery, please do not destroy each other, etc. We do believe that chemical birth control is a bad thing and we advise against it for all because it has harmed so many young women and men ever since it was created. However, this is not a demand that all sexual acts have to be procreative. This is not a demand that people separate the beds until they are ready to make a baby. We are to celebrate and support marriage in all of its freedom and encourage men and women to enjoy these blessings and benefits from our Lord. Otherwise, we are telling people that temptation to sin is not a big deal. Just let it happen and let's be super private about everything and not let people be human beings. In this sense, the church should be the most pro-sex institution on earth. We believe that it's time to start emphasizing that. But unfortunately, there are other abuses which we will cover next week as part of the casus belli, so to speak, for the catacomb synod's existence. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.